Thank you, Josh. Josh and his team have been doing a great job with the youth group. So kudos to them. Um, Thank you, Josh. Um, We appreciate you. Oh, how I wish my nation would turn to Christ. How I wish we had godly leaders who would follow the Lord. How I wish there were not such a hardness of heart against the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever felt that way? Um, I share those thoughts not because I want to make a commentary on on America. Um, I share those thoughts because that's that's where Paul was at when he wrote these words. That's how he was feeling. And I think it's important for us to, to understand again the context of Romans 10 and where he's coming from. He is deeply... Uh, saddened by his, his nation, Israel, Israel's response to the Lord and, and the, the widespread rejection of Jesus Christ. And you can imagine how heartbroken he was. So, so let me just take you back. We, we've looked at these verses in recent weeks, but look again. Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies within me, with me in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If there was some way that he could give up his own salvation, and give it to them. He says, I would gladly do that. He deeply cares for his people, and he is grieved, unceasing grief and sorrow over their lost state. Look at Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Paul mourns over these people. They are zealous for God, but they have not trusted Christ. They have not looked to him for their salvation. And in the midst of that grief, Paul sees the need to answer a really big question, probably for for himself as much as for us. Why didn't the Jews respond to the gospel? Why aren't the Jewish people saved? These are God's chosen people. How is it that God's chosen people are not saved? And so in our passage today that that, um, Josh just read for us, Paul answers that question. Um, In light of what Christ has done to bring salvation, he lays out really four things that have to take place for the good news to reach them, for them to receive the gospel and, and, and believe Um, We see these in verses 14 and 15. And if you want to think of it, it's kind of like an assembly line. There's certain steps that take place along the way. How are we going to get from point A to point B, from the good news of what Christ has done to his Jewish brethren being saved? And so he, he asks these questions in verses 14 and 15, these four questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? And so there are these four things that are required. And if you want to think of it just in in bullet point, real simple terms, you have to have messengers sent. 
You have to have a message preached. You have to have a message heard. And you have to have a message believed. And Paul tells us in verse 16 the problem. So in verse 16 he says, However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so Paul's going to drive this point home in the verses that follow that if we're looking at those four things, the first three of those have all been accomplished. God has done his part in making sure everything is in place. The fault lies with Israel, who did not believe. And so look look with me at these verses. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul reminds us that the way to come to a place of faith, the way to receive the gospel, is by hearing the message. You have to hear the message. And so he's going to bring up this question. Have they actually heard the message? Are they aware of what Christ has done for them? Because that is a necessary prerequisite for them to come to faith in Christ. And so he goes on to say, as we look at these verses, verse 18, But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Um, That that question uh, in the Greek implies a a positive answer. It's, It's more like he's saying, it's not as if they haven't heard, right? They have heard, haven't they? And he goes on with this quote, Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's quoting from Psalms. He's reminding us, all the earth knows. Right, This message has gone forth. But I say, verse 19, Surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation which without understanding will I anger you. Verse 20, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying really kind of two things with this this mentioning of the others, the Gentiles, the other nations around them. One is, not only has the message gone forth, it's gone forth past you guys, right? Past the Jewish people, to the point where even the Gentiles know about this, right? And many of them have responded. And the other thing he's doing with this is he's giving a bit of foreshadowing, because in the next chapter he's going to talk about the issue That the Gentiles received this, but the Jews did not. And so he's raising this issue. How is it that even the Gentiles got the message and believed, and the Jewish people did not? And then he concludes in verse 21 here. He says, as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have, and this is God speaking, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And so we have this this imagery that God is pleading with the nation of Israel to respond. And it's it's not just a one-time thing. It's not like they they heard the message once. No, this is is really kind of like an overview of the history of Israel here. That God has been crying out to them throughout their history. And throughout their history, they have been disobedient and obstinate. Um, if, if Romans chapter 9 was emphasizing the sovereignty of God, and it was, 
then Romans chapter 10 is emphasizing the other side of the coin, which is human responsibility. So God is absolutely in control. God is absolutely making sure things happen as he has planned. Chapter 10 reminds us that there is still a responsibility to respond. And that's what he's saying here. And so if we read these words, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. You don't have to think very hard to remember some of the times throughout Israel's history of God continually reaching out to them, drawing them to himself. So think about the book of Judges, for instance. In the book of Judges, you you have the, the people rebelling, serving other gods, and God reaches out and draws them to himself by sending a judge. And the judge reminds them, of what they are supposed to be doing, and leads them back to the Lord. And then, as as we know, within a few years, they always turned back to serving their false gods again. Or think about the the season of the kings, this whole long string of kings that, that Israel had. And if you remember, Israel as a nation kind of divided. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the north, not one of their kings was good. None of them was pleasing to the Lord. None of them faithfully served God. Every single one of them was leading the people astray. In the south, there's a few exceptions. We had Hezekiah and Josiah, a couple good kings along the way. But for the majority of them, they too were leading the people of Israel astray. And so we see this this recurring theme that Israel as a nation was turned against the Lord. Even though he was calling out to them and extending such incredible patience and mercy towards them, they kept turning away. Um, Even when Jesus arrives and Jesus goes and preaches throughout all of um, Judea, that whole area there, um, how many times did he rebuke the leaders for hypocrisy? Uh, Over and over, um, he he is... calling out the fact that they are stubborn and unwilling to believe. And so in Romans 10, Paul is really reminding himself and us that the fault is not with God. God has been incredibly merciful toward Israel. And so even though Paul, in Romans chapter 9, strongly emphasizes the sovereignty of God, here he's reminding us that we are accountable for how we respond to God. And the problem for Israel was their unbelief. A few weeks ago, I was um, out at our mailbox, went out to our mailbox, and um, got some mail, brought it inside, threw away some junk mail, opened a couple letters. And uh, one of the letters I opened up, I looked at it, and I was like, what is this? And then I realized, oh, this wasn't for me. (laughs) I opened my neighbor's mail. It was in my mailbox, and I, I realized, oh, shoot. And um, it's, it's rude to read someone else's mail. I think it's also illegal. And so I quickly put it back in the envelope, walked it over to my neighbor, gave it back to him, um, because it wasn't my mail. Um, have you ever read the Bible and come across a passage and you feel like you're reading someone else's mail? Um, what I want to do is I want to show this morning that this is not someone else's mail. <laughs> this, this is a message for us, too. Right. This is very clearly Paul speaking about his concern for the nation of Israel. 
But this is also a passage that deals with some universal truths that all of us need to hear. And so we're going to walk through uh, Paul's four questions here in verses 14 and 15. And we're going to see four universal truths. Um, These are theological principles that apply to everyone throughout the ages. Um, All of us, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, I think most of us here are Gentiles. Um, Gentiles being everybody else, right? So um, the first thing that I want to point out is that God ordained that salvation would come through Christ alone. And and let me just be the first to acknowledge that is a fairly uh, politically incorrect statement to make in a pluralistic world. But this is what what he is implying very clearly. God ordained that salvation would come through Christ alone. Let me read a little bit of the context, the verses before, um, up through verse 14. So we'll start in verse 9, where Paul says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him, Christ, will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So what Paul is saying is that if a person calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. But there's a concern here. Because if they don't call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will not be saved. And that's why he's so deeply burdened for his fellow Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh. If they don't call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what hope do they have? If a person doesn't believe in Jesus and call on his name, they cannot be saved. Now let me point out how this is both an inclusive and an exclusive statement. So it's inclusive in the sense that it says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? This is not like singling out only this little group of people over here. No, this is an invitation to the world. And, and you go through scriptures, you see that that is God's heart. Right? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? This is an open invitation. It's open to everyone. It's as inclusive as you can get. It's exclusive in the sense that it's only coming from one source. Right? There is only one place that you can get this. Right? You can go ask someone else for this, but they don't have it to give. Right? Only the Lord has this to offer. Um, no one else is able to give what he gives. And so there's a lot of other religions out there, and a lot of them are making promises of eternal life, but those are empty promises. That's the point of it. Right? The only one who has the power to save is the Lord. And so we need to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it's kind of a reality check for our culture, right? I think it's a really important reality check. Right? This is a very exclusive statement in the sense that if you, if you don't call on Christ, you will not be saved. Um, I think of John chapter 6. This isn't in the slides, but John chapter 6, 
where, if you remember, Jesus is preaching to the crowds, and he's telling them that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to, to be saved, and, and they have no idea what that means, right? They're completely flabbergasted. And Jesus is intentionally doing this because the crowds are following him for the wrong reasons. And so he's basically saying, are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me? And so a whole bunch of them leave, right? The crowds part and leave because they're like, this is weird. I don't know what to do with this, right? And so Jesus kind of chases off the crowds by the way he's teaching. And then he turns to the, to the disciples and says, how about you guys? Are you going to leave too? Almost inviting them. Why don't you guys take off too? And Peter says the best thing. Peter says, Lord, where else would we go? Because you have the words of eternal life, right? There is nowhere else to go. There's, no one else has what Jesus has. He has the words of eternal life. We have to look to him. Uh, Peter himself, later in Acts chapter 14, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 8 through 12. Um, Acts chapter 4, verse 8 through 12. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, and a little bit of context here, Peter is speaking to the religious leaders um, right after having healed a man who was born lame. This man had been born unable to walk. Peter and the disciples come along. They heal him in the name of Christ. He's jumping up and down. He's excited, and the religious leaders aren't too sure about this. And so, Acts 4, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so God ordained that salvation would come through Christ alone. And so I think that's a really good reminder for all of us, a good starting point for the rest of this passage, is to remember that salvation comes only through Christ. Um, The second thing that he points out is that God ordained that salvation would be received through the hearing of of the gospel. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And that implies something really important for all of us, that words must be used in sharing the gospel. There's a really famous, popular quote out there. Um, You've maybe heard it before. Uh, It says, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Have you guys heard that quote before? Anybody hear that quote? Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. That quote is usually attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Um, He was an Italian preacher about 800 years ago. Um, But here's the problem. You can go through all of his biographies, you can go through all of his original writings, and you'll never find that quote. He didn't say that. So it's kind of like that quote that um, is on the internet. Have you you heard this quote um, from Abraham Lincoln, that you can't believe everything you read on the internet? 
He didn't say that either. <laughs> so no, th- this, is, this is one of those things. It's an urban myth, urban legend, whatever. Um, I don't know where it came from. But the reality, the truth is, this, this man, Francis, was a fiery preacher that used words everywhere he went. He was preaching the gospel faithfully. And um, no matter how many biographies you read, you're not going to find that because that's not his approach. His approach was to preach the gospel. And yes, your life should back that up. But the point is, you have to use words. Even Jesus used words. If anyone could have just walked through town and people would bow the knee, it would have been Jesus. But Jesus used words to communicate his message. And so we, do, we need to as well. Um, the gospel is a verbal message. Um, that's, a, that's a good reminder for us because I think there is a tendency for us to lean a little too hard on lifestyle evangelism with the idea that people are going to see our life and notice a difference and that they're going to start asking questions like, how must I be saved? What should I do in order to have my life transformed into such an amazing thing as yours? Right? But the reality is people need a little bit of coaxing and prompting. They, they need to hear us speaking about Jesus Christ. Right? It is a verbal message. And so God ordained that salvation would come through Christ alone, that salvation would be received through the hearing of the gospel. And third, God ordained that the message of salvation would be given through human messengers. How will they hear without a preacher? Now, this is extraordinary. God doesn't need us. He could have done it all on his own, right? But he chose to partner with us to carry his message. And that is just amazing, right? It is absolutely incredible that God has seen fit to give us the privilege to be part of the game, right? To be involved in in what he's doing in this amazing work of carrying the good news to the whole world, and so God ordained that this message would be carried through human messengers. That, just as a side note, this is something, somebody ought to write a book about this, but this is something that is, is incredible. This is how God acts, right? This is how God has done it all, right? So if you think about the, the scriptures that we have, this Bible, this Bible is a human product and a divine product, Right? These things were written down by human authors, and some of their personality comes through, but this is also divinely inspired. So God partnered with some people, like Paul and Peter and others, to create this book for us. Right? This is also how God chose to save the world. When he decided that he wanted to save the world, he said, I want to have the perfect combination of God and man, Jesus. And so God became man so that this might be accomplished through God, but also through man, right? So this this partnership between the human and divine, this is how God works. And so here we see God is using preachers, human messengers, to carry forth this message. And so that that is really cool that we have the opportunity to partner with God in bringing good news the good news of the gospel so that people can get saved. As a side note, our world 
deeply needs good news today. Can we all agree on that? There's like a giant hurricane that's headed for the coast, and everything in Afghanistan seems to be bad, and there's just one piece of bad news after another. And man, we have the privilege of bringing good news. Hey, you know how the world is broken? You know how it's super messed up? You know how like even we are kind of messed up? Like, Jesus Christ is bringing a resolution to all of this. He's going to fix all of this. In fact, he's going to fix our hearts as well, the sin that's inside of us, so that we're no longer broken, ruined, messed up people, right? This is amazing good news that we have to carry to the nations and to, to even to our neighbors. Um, when was the last time you shared the gospel? I want you to think about that for a moment. When was the last time you shared the gospel? And what I mean by that is talk to someone about Jesus and told them the good news. When was the last time you shared the gospel? Um, I think oftentimes folks are, are nervous about sharing their faith. Um, I know I have been. Man, in high school, I was, I was terrified of talking about it. Um, but here, here's been my experience. Um, the times that I have shared the gospel way more as an adult than when I was in high school. Um, every time I share the gospel, I find out that my fears were pretty much unfounded. There's occasionally times where somebody's really, really upset about hearing about something, but um, usually those fears are unfounded. God goes before you, right? Jesus is speaking through you, giving, the word, giving you the words to say. The Holy Spirit's already been working in that person's heart. We're just joining the work that God has already been doing there. And so verse 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It is as if Jesus Christ is speaking through you, right? You are the human mouthpiece for what Christ wants to say in that person's life. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so the the Holy Spirit's been doing the work already. Jesus is speaking through you. All that to say, we have a good message, right? Don't be afraid to talk about it, and don't be afraid that, like, somehow you have to do all the work. The reality is that God has been at work already. We're simply joining him. Um, the, The fourth thing that I want to point out here is that God did send human messengers. That fourth question, how will they preach unless they are sent? Now, here's the question I want everybody in the room to ask. Okay, Here's the question that I ask when I come to this. Is who exactly is being sent? I want you to think about that here. Um, Paul's talking here in Romans chapter 10. He says, you know, Um, How will they call on him whom they've not believed, who they haven't heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? So Paul's talking about preachers being sent forth. And the question is, who are these preachers? Is this this all of us? Is this all believers? Or is this just the apostles back then? Or is this like a special group of preachers? Like maybe this is just Jacob and me, right? Because in our church, we're the preachers. Right, so maybe only Jacob and I have beautiful feet. Right? Maybe that's the case. I have nice feet, I think. I don't know. How about you, Jacob? You have nice feet? Yeah. So um, 
Does everybody else in the room get a free pass on this one? And it's just me and Jacob that really need the. And again, this is then someone else's mail. Is that the case? Right? Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through some passages. Because I think this is a really good question to ask. I think it's important for us to understand what is meant here by preachers. Okay, now, the, broadly speaking, the word preacher in, in, in the Greek is a pretty broad word. It could mean preach. It could mean proclaim. It doesn't have to be just the guy that stands up front. It's, it's any speaking forth of the good news, right? But I want to take you through three passages. Okay, and I want to look at these passages, and, and let's be careful about this. Let's not make assumptions. Okay? So the first passage we're going to look at is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. So you can turn there if you'd like. Um, I'll read it. Um, it'll be on the screen. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. This is a familiar passage, often known as the Great Commission. It begins this way. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, a couple questions about this passage. First, whose responsibility was it, according to this, to make disciples? Okay, if you read closely, it says that he was speaking to the 11 disciples. Okay, there's not 12 right now because Judas is already out of the picture. So we have 11 disciples, and Jesus is speaking to them up on the mountain, and he tells them to go make disciples. So, According to this, 11 people are supposed to go make disciples. And what were they exactly supposed to teach these disciples? Well, they were supposed to go out and they were supposed to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Let's think through what that includes. What is all that Jesus commanded? Well, there's a lot of things, right? We have a whole bunch of, we have four Gospels, we have the New Testament. There's a lot that Jesus commanded that we need to pay attention to. And so things like um, love your enemies, right? Love your neighbor, forgive your enemies, pray for your enemies, all those kinds of things. One of the commands, though, is this one that he just gave. Make disciples, right? So that's part of what Jesus commanded was to go forth and make disciples. And so that means that if you're going to be a disciple and obey everything that Jesus commanded, then you need to go make disciples, Does that follow? Does that make sense? Right? So we are called to make disciples. And so you're not really a fully developed follower of Christ, fully developed disciple, until you are passing it on and making disciples yourself. Okay? So who is expected to preach, to pass on this message? Well, I think all of us, right? Anybody who's a follower of Christ is supposed to. Okay? Maybe that one doesn't follow. Let's find another one here. Let's look at 1 Peter verses 2 or chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10. Peter speaking through speaking to the church says these words. 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter, reminding them of their identity, tells them that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then he gives this explanation why. Why did God give us such a unique identity? Why did he call us out as his own special people? It's so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him, Christ, who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So who is expected to proclaim the excellencies of Christ? We are, right? That's all of us. Okay, so who's supposed to make disciples? We are. Who's supposed to proclaim the excellencies of Christ? We are. Let me take you to one more passage that I just really love, and this is John chapter 4. And... um, You guys are familiar with this. I think this is the the Samaritan woman at the well. And I want to pick it up at verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with, with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? I can imagine she, I, she sounds sarcastic when she asks that question, doesn't she? Like, what are you talking about? How are you going to get living water for me? Right? Well, what happens in the, the story that follows is Jesus has this interplay with this, this woman, this con- conversation with her, and they go back and forth, and she keeps asking questions, and he's just directing the conversation the whole time. And he's leading exactly where he wants to go until he reveals two really important things. First, he reveals that he knows all about this woman. He knows that she's had five husbands previously, and the one that she has now isn't her husband. And so that's kind of shocking for her. How does he know this? And then secondly, he reveals that he is the Messiah. And it's just amazing because Jesus hasn't been this open up to this point. And there are very few times in the Gospels where he is this direct in telling someone, I'm the Messiah. And yet he does in this passage. And so the woman is amazed. She runs back to town to go tell everybody about this amazing guy that she just met. And you can imagine the message that she had for them. She goes back to town. She tells them, I met this guy, and he knows that I've been married five times, and the guy I'm with is no longer, is actually my husband. (laughs) And they're like, why are you telling us this? (laughs) What? And then she goes on to say, Um, and he is the Messiah. Now, think for a moment, how much at this point does she know about Jesus? Just about nothing. (laughs) She had a maybe 10-minute conversation with him. I don't know how long. She had a brief conversation with him, and then she ran back to town. Um, Verse 39, John 4, 39. 
From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. And what an incredible story. I love that story because one of the main excuses that we come up with is like, what if they ask me questions, right? I don't feel like I have all the answers. You know, what if they ask me about dinosaurs, right? If they do, just point them back to Jesus. But what if they ask me some question I don't know the answer to? Well, that's okay, right? I think you know more than this woman did, right? You probably know more about Jesus than this woman did. I think, actually, by your presence in this room this morning, (laughs) you know more about Jesus than this woman did just from what we've said today, right? This woman had almost no information, and yet she was able to be an evangelist that led a city to Christ. So we don't have that much of an excuse. That's the point, right? We have every opportunity to be the preacher and carry the message, right? You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to have a special education. You don't need all that that stuff to carry forth the simple message of the gospel. So who are the ones who are sent forth with this message? It's us. It's all of us. We have everything we need for that. So we're the ones who make disciples. We're the ones who proclaim the excellencies of Christ. We all know enough about Jesus to tell others. So let me go back to that that list of four questions, that that little step-by-step. You've got messengers sent. You have a message preached. You have message heard. And you have a message that is believed. What I want to do is I want to focus in on two of those words. They're the, the active part of this. Um, And that is to preach and to believe, right? God did the sending. Hearing is kind of a passive act, right? But what we're called to do is we're called to preach and to believe, right? That's the part that humans get to play in this whole thing. And so let's first talk about that part about that thing about being called to believe. Um, Jacob did a great job last week clarifying that this is not just generic belief. Right? This isn't like when you walk through Hobby Lobby and there's the, the sign that says believe in something. Right? If you guys have seen the Polar Express, have you guys seen that movie? Um, animated movie. And um, they get a golden ticket, and on the golden ticket, it says believe in something. I, I don't know what. Santa Claus, I guess? I don't know. Um, we must believe the truth about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So Romans 10.9, when he says, um, if you believe in your heart, I'm sorry, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? There's some content here. Right? We're expected to believe this message about Jesus Christ. So real quick, review for all of us. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in in Christ. This isn't for someone else. This isn't someone else's message, right? And I think there's this danger for a lot of people that they've been in church and they feel like that's good enough, but really that's just like being the Jewish people, right? The Jewish people in this particular setting during that time when they rejected their Savior, right? You're around all this stuff, but have you actually put your faith in Christ? Um, back in July, we had a really fun event. We baptized several people down at the river. 
Um, in a couple weeks, we're going to baptize several more. And what an amazing thing it is when we get to celebrate baptism. And so on September 12th, um, you heard earlier Josh mentioned that we're going to have a church picnic, and we're going to celebrate baptism that day. And man, I would love for you to be a part of it. Um, if, if you have um, recently put your faith in Christ, we would love for you to, to make that public and get baptized that day. Um, and even if you've already done that and it was years ago, please be there. Let's celebrate this thing together. Um, if you're not sure about putting your faith in Jesus, maybe you've got some unresolved questions, some things that you're not sure about, come see Jacob or myself or anybody else in this room, right? Because we are all here to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And so there's a ton of people in this room that could answer that for you. That brings us to that second part, which is proclaiming. So we're to believe and we're to proclaim. What does it look like to make that a major part of your life? Um, I, I talked to somebody here just this morning that has spent decades praying for a family member um, to come to Christ. That, that is a commitment, you know, that, that is so, so important. To, to care that deeply about a family member, to pray for decades for them. And there have been some conversations along the way about Christ, but sometimes you've got to say, you know, this is, I'm in it for the long haul. I really want this person to come to know Christ. Um, the, the reality is this, this thing about proclaiming Christ takes a lot of different forms. For some of us, like me and Jacob and, and others around here, this, this is a profession, right? This is what we do for a living, but it doesn't mean that it's only for the professionals, right? All of us have a part to play in this. Um, if, if you're not sure what that looks like to live out this kind of purpose for your life, and like, how does that even play out in the world? I would encourage you guys, you've heard it before, you're probably tired of hearing it, and this will probably be my last sales pitch, okay? But the Perspectives class starts this Wednesday. We would love for you to be part of it. Um, one of the things that Perspectives does really well is to help you to wrestle through this idea of God's purpose for your life. right? And it does an amazing job showing how that gets played out in the world around us. Biblically, what are the foundations? But how does that get lived out? Um, I'll stop the sales pitch. I, you know, I, I hate selling stuff. Um, Years ago, I worked for Barnes & Noble College Bookstores. I was a store manager. And towards the end of my time there, they kind of moved away from this model of let's sell as many used textbooks as possible to make a bunch of money because of Amazon, frankly. And so they started moving in the direction of let's sell overpriced sweatshirts so that people will give us their money. And man, they, they were talking about upselling and all. I don't care about that stuff. I don't want to sell sweatshirts. Who cares about sweatshirts, right? But I would be happy to sell something that matters. Perspectives class is great. I would love to be a salesman for Jesus, right? Not in a weird, creepy, door-to-door, I don't know, old necktie sort of way, but like, uh, like telling people how great Jesus is, Right? Jesus is worth talking about. One other thing about this, this proclaiming thing is, I think sometimes we get the impression, oh man, this is all on me. right? How am I going to do that? I don't want to have that conversation. And we get the idea that it's all on me. 
this is not just an individual thing. And there is an individual aspect to proclaiming Jesus. But this is also something that we as a community do together. Right? And that, that's encouraging, right? We, we proclaim Jesus in the way we love one another. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So when we love each other well, the world looks at that and goes, wow, that's really cool. I wonder how that's happening. Um, we, we, we show the love of Jesus in the way that we interact with our community. Um, and we show the love of Jesus. We proclaim Christ in the way that we gather for worship. And so the very fact that you're here this morning is sending a message to those around you that this matters, right? That this is really important to you. Um, We're going to do communion here. We're going to take communion here this morning. And communion is 